Just a note, this episode contains descriptions of torture and war crimes that may not be appropriate for some audiences. Four young American sailors headed down a manila pier into the burning, smoky, congested city, while their ship, the USS Canopus, glided silently into Manila Bay and disappeared into the darkness. They had a mission to complete, destroy U.S. Navy warehouses ahead of Japanese occupation of Manila. They accomplished that goal and more, only to discover it was too late to retreat to Bataan with the rest of American forces. So they headed for an American military hospital, which they assumed would be a sanctuary. It wasn't. The four young men, including John Burke, a 30-year-old Navy storekeeper with dark hair and a toothy, endearing smile, were turned away from the hospital. Stranded and desperate in a city about to be occupied by enemy forces, the men pretended to be civilians. Japanese officials placed them in the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp in Manila in January 1942, mere days after the Japanese forces moved into the city. But a year later, the four sailors were found out. Well, sort of. The Japanese heard rumors that American military members were hiding in the civilian camp and disguising themselves as civilians. The Japanese gave such individuals two choices, give yourself up and face an unknown fate or be discovered and executed. The four Navy men, John Burke, 31-year-old William Patton, and their fellow sailors, Las Cano and Fontaine, gave themselves up and were sent to a dungeon in Manila's medieval-era Fort Santiago. For nearly three months, they languished in the crowded, dark dungeons. Only faint light filtered into the stone prisons. They had a communal can to defecate in. The fort was located on a river and close to Manila Bay, so the dungeons were sometimes affected by the ocean tide, and some prisoners drowned. Burke, Patton, and their associates were watched day and night by guards and often beaten. They were not allowed to speak to each other and received a small bowl of rice and some water each day. For 73 days, they awaited their fate. And then came the verdict, sentenced to execution, at least for one of them. This is Left Behind. Welcome to Left Behind, a podcast about the people left behind when the U.S. surrendered the Philippines in the early days of World War II. I'm Anastasia Harmon, and I tell you the stories of World War II servicemen and women, civilians, guerrillas, and others captured by Japanese forces in the Philippines. My great-grandfather, Al-Masam, was one of those POWs, and his memoir inspired me to tell these stories. Last week, I shared the stories of naval storekeepers Arthur Lascano and Gordon Fontaine, and how they sabotaged the Japanese. This week, I'm continuing that story, focusing on Lascano and Fontaine's fellow saboteurs, John Burke and William Patton. And you'll learn the unlikely but true reason that at least one of these men wasn't executed by the Japanese. Let's jump in. John Burke entered this world on October 15, 1911 in Sparks, Nevada. But he was raised in San Francisco, California, among his mother's family who were orchard-planning Italian immigrants. But fruit orchards wasn't his calling. No, young John was a sprinter. A sprinting sensation, in fact, at San Jose High School during the late 1920s. 
The school's yearbook stated that John was, quote, one of the fastest sprinters in the league, close quote, during his junior year in 1928. John joined the Navy right after graduating high school in 1929. He was stationed at the Naval Air Base in Hawaii in the early 1930s. He was an all-Navy sprinter there and eventually coached their track team. In 1932, he joined the Navy Olympic boxing team, which trained in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm not totally certain what the Navy Olympic boxing team was. Annapolis, Maryland is home to the U.S. Naval Academy. And in the 1920s, boxing became a popular intercollegiate sport at the Naval Academy, where they went undefeated in dual meets for 11 years. The coach of the Naval Academy's boxing team was Spike Webb, who coached the four U.S. Olympic boxing teams between 1920 and 1932. As far as I can tell, though, John Burke was not a member of the 1932 U.S. Olympic boxing team. Perhaps he trained at the U.S. Naval Academy to be on the team but didn't make it? I don't know. Interestingly, Burke's fellow storekeeper, Gordon Fontaine, who was highlighted in last week's episode, was also an amateur boxer. Sometime during the 1930s, Burke married a woman named Emma. I know nothing about her except that during World War II, she was John's next of kin, according to military records, and lived in San Diego, California. Burke was transferred to the USS Canopus in October 1939 and spent the next two years cruising the Asiatic Pacific and helping to take care of submarines. While on board, he came under the command of Chief Warrant Officer Almasam, who is my great-grandfather. Burke had been aboard the Canopus for about two years when storekeeper Patton was transferred onto the ship. William Anderson Patton was born October 7, 1910 in Foreman, Arkansas, a tiny rural town in the far western part of that state. It's literally 10 miles north of the Texas border and about 5 miles east of the Oklahoma border. In 2010, the population was 1,011 people. It's tiny. I seem to know more about William's hometown than his early life. His father died 12 days after he was born. And I'm sure there's a story there, but frustratingly, I haven't found anything more than the father's death date. William's mother remarried, but she passed away in 1924 when William was just 13. I haven't discovered who raised William either. In 1920, so four years before his mother's death, nine-year-old William was not living with her and her new husband. And he doesn't seem to have lived with his stepfather after his mother died. So I have no idea where William was living. I can't find him living with his grandparents. Perhaps he was with aunts or uncles. He had at least 10 of them, but I haven't been able to locate him. So besides his birth certificate from 1910, the first real information I've uncovered about William is that he got married around 1933 to Lois Barbara Olson, an attractive typist, according to a newspaper, who worked at a shipyard in Tacoma during the war. I haven't found exact details about when or where they married, which is about on par with what else I haven't been able to find out about the rest of William's pre-war life. And that is rather strange, considering how much I usually find out about my POWs. Anyway, William joined the Navy on October 3rd, 1939, four days before his 29th birthday. Two years later, in fall 1941, 31-year-old storekeeper Patton found himself on board the USS Canopus, where he met fellow storekeepers John Burke, Arthur Lascano, and Gordon Fontaine. Well, the war started, 
and the four storekeepers were sent into Manila to destroy Navy warehouses. They then masqueraded as civilians at the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp until they were found out and turned themselves into Japanese authorities. Interestingly, a newspaper article states that the four men hid for several months in the mountains before being captured and imprisoned in the dungeon at Fort Santiago. I can't verify this information. Psalm recorded their story in his memoir, but mentions nothing about them hiding in the mountains. They could have. Some American POWs escaped the Bataan Death March and hid in the Philippine jungles. Some successfully, others not so much. Some even joined Filipino guerrilla groups. However, I have found all four sailors' names on the list of Santo Tomas civilian internment camp internees. So we know for certain they were in that civilian internment camp at some point. They could have very well hidden themselves in the mountains for a while and then turned themselves in as civilians. But honestly, that seems unlikely to me. Four young American men turning themselves in as civilians months into the war seems like it would have been highly suspicious to the Japanese. So perhaps the newspaper's mention of hiding in the mountains is a case of someone misremembering. Regardless, while they were hiding at Santo Tomas, all four men were declared killed in action by the U.S. military, and their families were notified. Once they identified themselves to Japanese officials at Santo Tomas, Burke, Patton, Lescano, and Fontaine were officially recognized by the American military as alive and as prisoners of the Japanese. Whether they would remain alive was yet to be seen, as they were sent directly to the Fort Santiago dungeons. Here's Burke's description of that experience. For three months, we were beaten, starved, tortured, and finally court-martialed. At the court-martial's end, Burke was sentenced to death. I don't know if the other three storekeepers received the same sentence, but it seems reasonable that they may have. The Japanese forced Burke to dig his own grave. This atrocious practice wasn't unheard of in Japanese POW camps for prisoners who had tried to escape or committed some other infraction. In 2015, a 98-year-old former POW of the Japanese during World War II recalled, I can never forget seeing Japanese soldiers forcing a couple of prisoners who had attempted to escape to dig their own graves. This was taking sadism to its limits. I just wonder what I would have done if that had happened to me. I think I may have just buckled at the knees and flopped down. Then at least I couldn't have been forced to dig my own grave. But I don't particularly want to speculate. A chap I was working with one day told me, The thing is, we're all dead and in hell. We just haven't realized it yet. I often try to place myself, mentally and emotionally at least, in the shoes of the POWs I write about. But this experience of digging your own grave, I just can't even imagine being in that situation. Mentally, I, I can't even go there. I have no reference point. And like the POW said earlier, I don't particularly want to speculate. And thankfully, I have not found any photos of such torture. A former POW drew a picture of such an instance that he once witnessed, and I've put that on my website. The link, as usual, is in the show description. So, storekeeper John Burke was digging his own grave. This would have been about summer of 1943, when, providentially, his past came back to save him. A Japanese general realized that Burke had a very rare, very important possession. A possession that would save his life and perhaps that of storekeepers Patton, Lescano, 
and Fontaine. While the four men were languishing at Fort Santiago in summer 1943, back in Tacoma, Washington, Lois Patton, storekeeper William Patton's wife, learned her husband was alive, and that caused some issues for her. At the very, very beginning of the war, President Franklin D. Roosevelt had offered this advice to the American people. This government will put its trust in the stamina of the American people and will give the facts to the public just as soon as two conditions have been fulfilled. First, that the information has been definitely and officially confirmed. And second, that the release of the information at the time it is received will not prove valuable to the enemy, directly or indirectly. Most earnestly, I urge my countrymen to reject all rumors. These ugly little hints of complete disaster fly thick and fast in wartime. They have to be examined and appraised. It must be remembered by each and every one of us that our free and rapid communication these days must be greatly restricted in wartime. It is not possible to receive full, speedy, and accurate reports from distant areas of combat. This is particularly true when naval operations are concerned. For in these days of the marvels of the radio, it's often impossible for the commanders of various units to report their activities by radio at all, for the very simple reason that this information would become available to the enemy and would disclose their position and their plan of defense or attack. Of necessity, there will be delays in officially confirming or denying reports of operations, but we will not hide facts from the country if we know the facts and if the enemy will not be aided by their disclosure. Lois received an official notification regarding her husband, William, in March 1942, three months into the war. It came from the U.S. Navy. Sailor William Anderson Patton, storekeeper second class, made the supreme sacrifice during the first battles of World War II in the Philippines, the notice said. It stated William's presumed date of death as January 24, 1942. And that notice was soon followed by a letter from Patton's commanding officer, which would have been the Canopus's captain, detailing the manner of William's death. Side note right here. I find that piece of information very interesting because the captain didn't know what happened to Patton. I know for other records for the storekeepers that the captain wrote things like, missing since the beginning of the war, but I haven't run across anything where he's detailed the actual manner of someone's death. So I have to think that this piece of information that she received a detailed account from the captain of Patton's death might not be 100% accurate. It's one of the drawbacks of relying on newspapers, but still, newspapers add so much to the stories that I tell. Death notifications regarding William continued throughout 1942 and into 1943. His name appeared in newspaper listings of Tacoma's World War II dead. And his name, along with Burke, Lascano, and Fontaine's names, appeared in Life Magazine's July 1942 list of all American World War II dead to date. 
So Lois was following the president's advice and definitely not listening to rumors about her husband's demise. I mean, she'd received several official notifications of his death. And then Lois, believing she was a widow, met someone. A soldier, a younger man, just 25 years old to her 31 years. He was stationed at Fort Lewis, not far from Tacoma, where she worked as a typist at a military shipyard. So Lois Patton married the young soldier on May 14, 1943, some 15 months after first receiving word that William Patton had died. The newlyweds started their life together. They say timing is everything, and for Lois, the timing couldn't have been worse. Because on September 18, 1943, almost exactly four months to the day of her second marriage, and while her new husband was on a training exercise in Oregon, Lois received yet another official military notification. But this one was different from the others. Turns out the Americans discovered an error. William Anderson Patton was alive, a prisoner of war of the Japanese. It's funny how decisions lead to very unexpected consequences. Back in January 1942, when storekeeper Patton and his three Navy associates, four uninjured, combat-ready American sailors, were stranded in Manila, they had a decision to make. Pretend to be American civilians and perhaps be treated with mercy by occupying Japanese forces, or advertise themselves as American military and risk being shot on sight. Well, as you know, they chose the first. But that decision led to all of them being reported missing in action and then declared dead. And for William, that meant his wife remarried. Decisions, decisions. And now Lois had a decision to make. She annulled her second marriage immediately after learning William was alive. The annulment was official in November 1943. In case you're interested, that young soldier seems to have remarried in 1945. And Lois went on with her life, and she told a local newspaper that, When William gets home, we will take up our lives together where we left off a couple of years ago. By the way, her entire marriage triangle played out in the Tacoma area newspapers, which must have been embarrassing. But now the question was, would William come home? Because across the ocean, in a war-torn Philippines, Storekeeper William Patton was in a medieval dungeon and possibly sentenced to death. As John Burke was digging his own grave, a Japanese general realized that Burke possessed a small red, white, and blue ribbon. And the general changed Burke's death sentence to 50 years hard labor. That small ribbon was special. Fewer than 200 people probably had one. And here's why Burke had his. By the late 1930s, storekeeper Second Class Burke, who you'll remember was boxing at Annapolis in 1932, had traded in his boxing gloves for sea legs. In 1939, he was stationed aboard the USS Astoria when the ship received a special mission. Returned to Japan the cremated remains of Hiroshi Saito, Japanese ambassador to the United States. Burke and the Astoria left Annapolis, Maryland on March 18, 1939. They sailed through the Caribbean and the Panama Canal and then on to Hawaii and finally across the Pacific to Japan. After a month at sea, the Astoria, flying the Japanese flag and accompanied by three Japanese destroyers, sailed into Yokohama Harbor on April 17, 1939. 
The Astoria's crew honored the ambassador with a 21-gun salute. Then American sailors carried his urn ashore. The Japanese people were exceptionally grateful to the Astoria crew, welcoming them with banners and waving American flags. The crew spent a week in Yokohama, attending the ambassador's funeral and several other social events. As a thank you for returning the ambassador's remains, every crew member of the USS Astoria, storekeeper Burke included, received a badge of honor from the Emperor of Japan, a red, white, and blue ribbon attached to a rectangular medal featuring the United States and Japanese flags, side by side, and the words, Welcome USS Astoria. I've got a picture of the medal on my website. And it's that little be-ribboned medal that saved Burke's life, and possibly Patton's, Les Cano's, and Fontaine's as well. Realizing that Burke was part of the Astoria crew, and that he had been decorated by Japan's emperor in 1939, a Japanese general in the Philippines changed Burke's sentence to 50 years hard labor. All four men were soon transferred to Cabanatuan POW Camp Number 1, about 70 miles or 112 kilometers north of Manila. Almasam, who had been their direct superior on the USS Canopus and who was already in prison at Cabanatuan, was surprised to see them and recorded the following in his memoir. One day in summer 1943, into camp walked my storekeepers from the USS Canopus, Burke, Fontaine, Lascano, and Patton. Psalm hadn't seen his men for some 18 months and likely thought them dead. Life at Cabanatuan POW camp was not as easy as it had been at the Santo Tomas civilian camp, but it certainly was better than in the Fort Santiago dungeon. The prisoners were starving, disease-ridden, beaten, and worked like animals. Burke spent the next year and a half at various POW work camps in the Philippines. In February 1945, Four years after he first entered the Santo Tomas civilian internment camp, Burke was incarcerated at Bilibid Prison in Manila. Bilibid Prison was an actual prison that the Japanese made into a POW prison and transfer station when they occupied Manila. Some POWs remained there for long durations. Others stayed there only a short while before being transferred to Japan. U.S. forces had made great advances into the Philippines by February 1945 and there had been heavy fighting, mainly by air, for several days. The tired, hungry prisoners inside Bilibid prison eagerly awaited the Yanks with tanks and steaks and cakes. One morning, the Japanese guards left the prison because, as the POWs were informed, they had been assigned another duty. The POWs remained inside Bilibid for safety, since they were in the middle of a war zone, and even positioned their own guards to keep unwanted visitors out of the prison. Around 6 p.m. on February 4, 1945, a rifle butt knocked a hole in one of the prison's wooden shutters. Was it friendly Filipinos, the prisoners wondered, or angry Japanese guards? As it turns out, both guesses were wrong. American forces had completely surrounded the prison walls and were trying to figure out what was inside. They had assumed Japanese forces, but were surprised to find 1,200 POWs, 700 military personnel and 500 civilians, including women and children. The surprised liberators passed cigarettes through the prison bars as they announced, we've come to get you out. John Burke had been in prison for 37 months and weighed just 87 pounds. 
He wrote a letter to his kid sister. I am free, well, skinny, and happy, and hope to be with you soon. Any words I might use to express how terribly I missed you would be inadequate. We had it tough, but it only made us realize how lucky we are to be Americans. Love to all, Johnny. He also wanted some of his mother's spaghetti and meatballs. She was, after all, the daughter of Italian immigrants. I want some of her spaghetti and meatballs too. On February 18, 1945, 34-year-old Burke and the other Billabin Prison POWs boarded a ship bound for San Francisco. Storekeeper Burke was on his way home. Meanwhile, Storekeeper William Patton had a different post-capture experience. After spending about a year at Kabanatuan, the Japanese transferred Storekeeper Patton to mainland Japan. He was likely there by August 1944. He was assigned to the Hiraoka Nagano camp, about 185 miles or 298 kilometers east of Tokyo. You might recognize the name Nagano as the 1998 Winter Olympic Games were held there. This camp was one of the most brutal POW camps, mainly due to the guards who the POWs described as very severe. The guards' treatment of prisoners often seemed arbitrary, and POWs could receive beatings for various infractions, such as being uncovered while sleeping. Sometimes the men would be forced to stand at attention in the middle of cold winter nights, just for the guards' amusement. The POWs nicknamed specific guards the Punk, Scarface, who once beat a POW to death, and Big Bird, among others. Nine Japanese guards at this camp were later executed for war crimes against the prisoners. The camp held about 450 British and American POWs, thousands of Korean and Chinese prisoners, and some sources actually called them slaves, were in a separate camp very close by. The POWs built the Hiraoka Hydroelectric Dam. They carried cement, worked in blacksmith and machine shops, and as general laborers. On September 4, 1945, American forces liberated the Hiraoka camp, clearing all POWs from the camp by 11.12 a.m. The liberated prisoners took a train to Japan's coast, where they boarded ships for home. After three years and nine months of captivity, 35-year-old William Patton was returning home to his wife, Lois. William Patton remained in the Navy after the war. In 1949, he and Lois lived in Oakland, California, and Patton eventually became a chief pay clerk in the Navy. On November 19, 1953, Lois was again living in Tacoma when she received yet another Navy notification. William had died of a heart attack while stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. This time, the report of death was accurate. He was 43 years old. His body was returned to Washington, and he's buried at Fort Lewis near Tacoma. Lois moved away from Tacoma for good in 1955. At some point, she married a man named George Boss, and the couple moved to the Los Angeles area in December 1966. Just two months later, on Monday morning, February 13, 1967, Lois was home alone when the house caught on fire. She inhaled smoke, and firefighters found her body at 9.40 a.m. She was just a few feet from the open front door. Her body was returned to Tacoma, where she rests in the Calvary Cemetery near her mother. John Burke also remained in the Navy after his release from Billabid Prison. 
1946, so not long after his release, Burke received what he called the highest tribute of my naval career, a letter from U.S. President Harry S. Truman, which included these words, You have fought valiantly and have suffered greatly. As your commander-in-chief, I take pride in your past achievements and express the thanks of a grateful nation for your services in combat and your steadfastness while a prisoner of war. While John Burke was in prison in the Philippines, his wife Emma was waiting for him in San Diego, California. She was a beautician, but I haven't found much more about her. I do know, however, that whatever happy reunion John and Emma had was short-lived. Emma died sometime in the 1940s, and John Burke married Lois Krutzenberger, a single mom with one daughter, in 1950 or 51. John and Lois soon had two children of their own, a daughter and a son. John Burke remained in the Navy and served in the Korean War. He achieved the rank of Lieutenant Commander and retired in March 1958. After his naval retirement, John, Lois, and their children settled in San Carlos, a small town just south of San Francisco, where he worked for a flight simulator manufacturer. Side note, I lived in the city right next to San Carlos when I was in high school. It's called Redwood City. On a Sunday in early December 1965, John and his 10-year-old son Richard were in a car accident with another vehicle. 10-year-old Richard was thrown through the car's windshield and died three days later. He had been a member of Cub Scout Den No. 4, Pack 123. John was hospitalized for several days, but he survived. He and his wife Lois always struggled with that loss. Twelve years later, after 25 years of marriage, Lois Burke passed away in February 1975. 90-year-old John Burke died of heart failure on August 10, 2002. He was survived by two daughters and grandchildren. He's buried with his son, Richard, in Golden Gate National Cemetery in San Bruno, California. Burke's resting place reunites him with another person from his past. Alma Salm, the one who ordered Burke on the sabotage mission in Manila, is also buried in the same cemetery. John Burke, William Patton, and their fellow storekeepers, Les Cano and Fontaine, were not the only Americans abandoned when the United States fled Manila in the last days of 1941. Hundreds of American, British, and other Allied civilians, men, women, and children, were stranded in the city when Japanese forces occupied it on January 2, 1942. Among them was a vivacious 21-year-old American woman who was just passing through the city when she became stranded there by war. More on that next week. This is Left Behind. Thanks for listening. You can find pictures, maps, and sources about William Patton's and John Burke's stories on my website. The link is in the show description. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Spreading the word about this podcast lets me continue sharing these amazing stories. Left Behind is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Anastasia Harmon. Voiceovers are provided by Paul Sutherland, Connor Davis, Tyler Harmon, and Brooke Davis. Dramatizations are based on historical research, although some creative liberty is taken. I'll be back next week with the civilians left behind when the United States abandoned Manila. Music